Will you join me now in turning with me in your Bibles once again to the Gospel according to Mark, the first chapter where we will look together at verses 16 through 20. Mark 1, 16 through 20, and you can find that passage on page 980 in your pew Bibles. Well, This morning we are continuing to make our way through Mark's account of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And we're going to be looking at what is undoubtedly, for many of us, a familiar passage. As Jesus calls his first four disciples into service within his kingdom. However, as is always the case, I would remind you that Mark is doing something extremely specific here. As he lays out the gospel of Jesus Christ for us. He wants us to wrestle with, he wants us to come to grips with the absolute majesty of the Son of God. And so though this text before us this morning may indeed be a familiar text, we want to make certain that we keep before our minds the context here and elsewhere as we study this particular account of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So allow me to just briefly remind you of what we looked at just last week in verses 14 and 15. And I'll not go into any real detail on those verses again this morning. I just want to briefly recap what we read last week as a means of keeping the context before us. Remember that John the Baptist, the forerunner of the Messiah, at this point has completed his mission. He has completed his exalted purpose in being the herald of the king. Mark will keep this king and his kingdom before us continually now for the remainder of this book. John has announced and he has baptized Jesus Christ, the king of kings in the Jordan River, inaugurating the work of the kingdom. Almighty God has thundered his declaration concerning this king, the God-man, when he said, This is my son, in whom I am well pleased. Jesus is the king of kings, the Lord of lords, the long-awaited Messiah come to seek and to save his subjects. Jesus was then immediately driven into the wilderness where he was tempted as the second Adam, By Satan himself. Satan tried in vain to cast a cloud over the declaration that God had made regarding Jesus Christ. It was the same cloud that he had cast in the garden. It was the same cloud that he casts even now. Seeking to rob God's people of the joy, the comfort, the rest, and the peace that passes all understanding that truly belongs to those who have been placed in union with Jesus Christ by faith. And we all know what he did to cast that cloud, right? Has God really said? He said to Jesus, if you are really the Son of God. Jesus then proceeds to throw down the efforts of the adversary by answering him very succinctly with what God had indeed said, and making God's word the end of the discussion. The declaration of Almighty God is always the last word. Satan leaves defeated, 
to go and to try to rob the bride of Christ of peace, joy, and rest, and ultimately to await the finality of all things. And so in verses 14 and 15, Mark begins now to expound for us the kingdom of God in an extremely specific way. And he begins by telling us the time, the place, and the message of the kingdom of God. And again, I want to be brief here, but we need to keep this at the front of our minds as we dig into this text that's before us this morning. First, the time. He tells us that after the temptation in the wilderness, when John had been thrown into prison, that Jesus began his ministry in earnest. Many think that perhaps something like a year had elapsed. Of course, we cannot be certain of that. We have no way of knowing exactly when John was thrown into prison. And quite honestly, I do not think that we need to speculate here much beyond what we are told by Mark. Because Mark wants us to think on these things. He wants for us to consider the weight and the significance of this particular moment in time. And he certainly does not want for us to get bogged down in the details. And so he simply does not give them. We just know that John's purpose in life to announce the Messiah, the King, had come. And that he was rapidly moving towards the end of his own race in life. And as John decreased, Jesus Christ increased. Indeed, the time had come. Mark also tells us the place. Jesus began to move forward with his mission in Galilee. We talked quite a bit last week about the significance of that place. We look back to Isaiah's prophecy concerning that area, and we know that the people there who walked in darkness would see a great light. The time had come, and Jesus, the light of the world, was beginning to shine in the very region of which the prophet had spoken of so many years before. The region that you will remember that Hiram, king of Tyre, had declared to be Kabul, or good for nothing. The darkness had been pierced with the light of Jesus Christ. And it did not take place as the world might have written the script. It was not in Jerusalem. It was not in the temple. Jesus did not travel from well-known rabbinical school to school looking for the scholars he needed to incorporate his mission. He did not travel immediately to the largest, most populated cities where he could gain the largest crowds numerically. No, the time had come for the king and his kingdom. The place began in Galilee where though the people were in darkness, they began to see a great radiating light. And of course we spoke of the message. Jesus began to spread the message of the gospel of the kingdom of God. The king had come, and he is going to redeem his people from the bondage of sin, death, and the devil. The second Adam is coming to undo the curse of the first. What is before us in our text this morning, brothers and sisters in Christ, is the majestic king of kings himself, building, growing, and establishing his glorious kingdom. Mark wants you to see the power and the majesty and the glory of it all. 
And if you have not witnessed it, as it has already been manifested here, I want to tell you, beloved, that Mark does not stop. If you find yourself at times disenchanted with this kingdom, Mark wants to speak with you here. Perhaps you found yourself hurt by the church of Jesus Christ. If you have, I want to tell you, Mark has something for you here. You think that perhaps you've seen far too much bad and not nearly enough good. Well, Mark bids you to come as he pulls back the veil on the majestic kingdom of God. And so this morning, as we continue to have that curtain pulled back for us, manifesting even more of the glory of the king and the kingdom, Mark wants for us to pause and to consider the call of this king. And so it's with all that in mind that I would ask that you follow along now as I read Mark chapter 1. Again, we will pick up with verse 16 and read through verse 20. Hear now the inerrant, infallible, and holy word of our Lord. And as he walked by the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. Then Jesus said to them, Follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. They immediately left their nets and followed him. When he had gone a little farther from there, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who also were in the boat, mending their nets. And immediately he called them. And they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and went after him. This is the word of our Lord. May he always bless the reading of it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we're grateful again for the opportunity that we have to come to your word this morning. We pray that you would clear our hearts and our minds of all those things that distract us. That we would be able to give our full undivided attention to your word this morning. This morning, And that hearing that word through the power of your spirit, we would be transformed more and more into the image of Christ for your glory. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I've said many times now in this series that I think that really the Christianity that Mark wants for us to see here as he expounds to us the glory of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, really is a far cry from what so many have accepted and unfortunately, I would say, promoted as biblical Christianity in our own day. A focus shift has taken place somewhere along the line. We now tend to accept and even promote a Christianity that really is entirely foreign to the actual pages of sacred scripture. And simply seeks to promote a healthier, better looking, more fulfilled, more successful financially, mentally and physically, a better all around me. And beloved, we justify it because I mean, come on. How could that incredibly positive outlook on life possibly be anything but good for me? The world can be a negative place. We'd be foolish to deny that there's much trouble and violence and discouragement and never-ending problems. 
So how is it that a little bit more introspection, a little bit more self-promotion, a little bit more self-love, a call to an overall healthier lifestyle, a new and better, a new and improved me, how could that ever be bad? How could that ever be considered unhealthy biblically? How could that line of thinking ever lead to an unhealthy frame of mind in the Christian life? Well, beloved, as often happens when we begin to reason in these fallen minds of ours, we begin our search for truth by asking all of the wrong questions. The first question simply cannot be, how could this line of positive encouragement, positive thinking, self-love and all of its ilk, how could that ever be bad for us? That's not the first question. The first question that needs to be asked is this. Is this biblical Christianity? In other words, is this what the Bible teaches us about God and about us and about redemption? Is this how God reveals himself to us in the pages of his word? And before we can get to the heart of helpful or unhelpful approaches and attitudes towards life itself, we must first establish and always establish whether the clear witness of the Bible matches our approach to life. In other words, does the Word of God shape our overall perspective on life itself? And in the case, with so much of what is popular for the moment theology, this positive, encouraging Christianity that places me at the very center of the universe simply does not hold up to the test of Scripture. And we'll certainly find none of it here in Mark as he sort of frantically moves to the place where he can finally begin to unfold for us and tell us who really is at the center of the universe. And it is the Lord Jesus Christ. The gospel, the message of the kingdom, is all about Him. The witness of the Bible is all about Him. It is His work of redemption. You understand, He and He alone is the hero of the story of Christianity. He is the Redeemer. He is the captain of our salvation. He is that great high priest who alone could come and make the sacrifice to end all other sacrifices until the end of time when he comes to make all things new. And Mark has clearly been moving in this direction the entire time in this letter. It is about the baptism of Jesus. It is about his temptation in the wilderness as he throws down the feeble attempts of our great adversary Satan to cast doubt on what Almighty God has said regarding Jesus Christ specifically. Mark wants you to understand that Christianity is all about Jesus standing in the place of his people for them. It's all about a substitutionary Savior, Redeemer, and King in every respect. And now Mark wants for us to see the power and the might and the absolute majesty of this King building 
his kingdom. You understand, the king has come. And you'll notice that Mark will not let anything in his narrative take away from that majesty. Do you see that here, beloved, as he calls the very first subjects with which he will establish his kingdom on earth? We must pay attention to what's going on here. Jesus, and only Jesus, is at the center of the story. And so I'm asking you this morning, do you see it? Look at the way Mark describes the calling of his disciples. It's certainly different for us, isn't it? He gives us truly little, if any, backstory about these men themselves. For example, he does not make us privy to any conversations that may or may not have passed between them as they considered all of the things that they had witnessed and even heard during those strange days leading up to this moment in their lives. We do not get a sense of a role that they had already been playing in the church. They were simply two brothers doing what they do. And in this case, that was fishing. They had built a fishing business to support themselves and they were doing exactly what they had done for many, many days. They were fishing. And up walks Jesus, and he speaks to them. And he simply says, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. And we need to see that Jesus is, what Jesus is doing here is not a proposition. This is important. It's not a proposition. It is a command, and it is a statement of fact. What Mark does next astounds us, especially those of us who have grown up in this rugged, individualist, independent, sort of self-absorbed culture that we currently live in, where we find ourselves at the center of everything that matters. He says, and they immediately left their nets and they followed him. We get nothing about what was up with these men as they walked away from the fruit of their own hands, the business they had built through toil and sweat and work. You understand, their life's work, if you will. You do not get anything about the internal struggle that more than likely took place as they left everything they had worked for in order to follow Jesus. There's no debate between the two of them about the merits of throwing in their lot with this new great teacher. We get nothing of any tearful goodbyes that had to have taken place. We hear nothing of grieving the loss of their life's work, just that Jesus approached them. He spoke to them. He said, follow me. You will no longer search for fish, but men. And they followed. It really is incredible, right? And I think that we must see something here if we're ever to glean the treasure that really is this gospel according to Mark. If if you want to know something of authentic, biblical, orthodox Christianity, then there's something that you have to see here in Mark where really I think he says it so clearly that we would have to close our eyes and ears in order to miss it. 
Think about everything that had led up to this point and what it is that Mark is telling you here in this narrative. Think of what's going on. This is the king, the king of kings. At his time, in his place, carrying his life-giving message of his kingdom, building his kingdom. You understand, this is his plan. This is his story. These are his purposes. This is the authority of the king. And Mark desperately wants you to see it. He doesn't give you the details. He doesn't want to let anything get in way of your seeing this. This really is the stuff of life and death. This is what will make what you call Christianity either legitimate or something less than what Jesus Christ, the Son of God, came in order to establish. From the very outset of the message of the gospel, we are reminded that it is not all about us. The center of this message is not that God is the great cosmic genie in the sky who wants you to just come to him with all of your worldly desires and to ask of him so that he can grant you the equivalent of wishes. That's not the heart of Christianity. That's certainly not the heart of the gospel. And so we must ask, in light of what Mark is telling us here, considering what he is so desirous for us to see here, What is the heart of it? What is at the heart of this message of the kingdom, the gospel? Beloved, at the heart of this is the message that God so invades your life that he becomes the very center of all that is you. He comes as your king. He is your righteousness. He is your faithfulness. He is your hope. He is your life. All that ultimately matters for you, He is. It's all about Him. Do you understand? Now, maybe you're thinking, you know, Steve, I see what you're trying to do here. I think I've got what you're trying to say. I guess I would have to say that it does seem that Mark makes a very big, even substantial point here. But why is it such a big deal? I mean, what harm could really come from me following Jesus and using that work to begin to work on myself? Why does it seem to be simply one or the other to you? Is it wrong for me to want to have my best life now? Is it really harmful for me to spend my time on both? To see that Christianity is about Jesus and me? Listen to me, beloved. The issue is not whether or not the gospel changes us. Clearly it does. Jesus speaks and we obey by his grace through his spirit, and he uses us to establish his glory, and he allows us to enjoy him forever. That's the truth. The gospel leaves no one unaffected. It either gives us all of that or it condemns us, but it doesn't leave us unaffected. 
But we need to see that it is his working in us and not our working with him to do great things for him and for us. He's not the kind of king that says, now, I've done what I could, now just get out there and do your level best. That's not the picture scripture paints. He takes you through it. He leads you to it. He's on his throne. He's reigning in your life. Do you believe that? Beloved, this is at the heart of what it is that justifies you as his child and as an heir to his kingdom. And it's critical that we get this right in the Christian life. Where we fall on this produces two vastly different looking forms of Christianity. This is exactly what we confess as a body of believers in the Belgic Confession as well as elsewhere. But I want you to listen specifically to Article 22 this morning of the Belgic Confession of Faith and see if you hear the agreement with Mark here. I want you to listen for the all-powerful, the all-sovereign, authoritative and majestic king that is at the center of all that truly is Christianity. Article 22. It's subtitled, Our Justification Through Faith in Jesus Christ. Listen to these words. We believe that to attain the true knowledge of this great mystery, the Holy Spirit kindles in our hearts an upright faith, which embraces Jesus Christ with all of his merits (coughs) and appropriates him and seeks nothing more besides him. For it must needs follow either that all things which are requisite to our salvation are not in Jesus Christ, or if all things are in him, then those who possess Jesus Christ through faith have complete salvation in him. Therefore, for any to assert that Christ is not sufficient, but something more is required besides him, would be too gross a blasphemy. For hence it would follow that Christ was but half a Savior. Therefore we justly say with Paul that we are justified by faith alone, or by faith apart from the works of the law. However, to speak more clearly, we do not mean that faith itself justifies us, for it is only an instrument with which we embrace Christ our righteousness. But Jesus Christ imputing to us all of his merits and so many holy works which he has done for us in our stead is our righteousness. And faith is an instrument that keeps us in communion with him in all of his benefits which when they become ours are more than sufficient to acquit us of our sins. And beloved, I'm asking you, do you hear in practice what Mark is placing before you today? Jesus Christ is the King of kings. He is the Lord of lords and He is sovereign. He is all-powerful. He is all-knowing. And He does not approach you with a propositional sales pitch. He invades your life as King. Christianity is not about The righteous restoration of self. King Jesus comes. King Jesus calls. And we follow him. 
You see, we know instinctively His voice. And everything that we need in order to be followers living in the big sky kingdom of God is given to us freely by His grace. He makes us into instruments in the Redeemer's hands. And self dies. We are given life in King Jesus through faith. You understand there's no self here anywhere near the center of the Christianity that we find in Mark. Jesus calls and that all that mattered to these men who are called no longer matters. Though their time and their effort and their life and their money had been wrapped up in fishing, they leave it all and follow Jesus to become the greatest of the fishers of men. The church of Jesus Christ was built upon the backs of these very men as God worked in them for his glory. And we need to see here that nothing about these men made that really possible. Have you ever thought about that? Jesus did not go to the most respected rabbinical schools in or around Jerusalem in order to find the men he needed. He didn't go to the temple to find them. He didn't ask around about where all the religious, seriously religious guys were. There were plenty. The scribes and the Pharisees. He was not looking for the ones who had already made such sacrifices for the kingdom of God. For those for whom positions of authority were at least their due. No. What did he do? He went to the sea and he called a couple sets of fishermen brothers and they left everything and followed him. And you have to ask, why? Why did they follow him? Why did they go? Because by the grace of Almighty God, they saw their king. They recognized his power and his authority and his voice. There was no debate. There was no struggle. Jesus speaks with the kingly authority of Almighty God himself, and they follow because they must. They leave everything to do it. After all, it all belongs to him anyway. God restores them to their original purpose. They were born to serve the king. They hear his voice. They answer his call. And they live for him. And it is him. And it is his authority as the king of kings that is at center stage in the gospel. Beloved, there are so many different directions that we could take with this, but in the interest of time this morning, I'm going to limit it to just this for us to consider. First, what do we find ourselves faced with here this morning? Well, for one thing, we have here a particularly important perspective adjustment, I think. I think all too often we tend to miss the forest for the trees in the Christian life and God in his mercy opens up his word to us in order to correct our course of thinking. 
Think about what Mark is describing here. King Jesus simply walks up to these men. He makes a command. He makes a statement. They immediately obey, leave everything to follow him. Here is the God-man, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, walking into enemy territory, speaking to enemies of God, those who are fallen in their father Adam, and instantly changing their course for his purpose. How does that apply to us? Well, brothers and sisters in Christ, this is exactly still how God builds his kingdom. He speaks his word. He opens eyes and ears and he calls his subjects home and they come. You know, the reason I spent so much time pointing out to you this morning that we tend to make Christianity all about us as individuals is that this is precisely the place where we fail to see what matters. How many of you spent the time that God, in His mercy, gave to you in this fallen world this week, fretting and worrying about things that you need to fix? I will raise my hand there, right? I would imagine that if I could turn the camera around, nobody would raise their hand, but... We know that I know you're tracking with what I'm saying. We get anxious, don't we? We get anxious over fixing our families. We fret and we worry about the way we're raising our kids. Whether we're making the right choices for their lives, for their education, for their social involvement, for their biblical training. We just want to make sure that we get it right. We go to the front and we try to direct beyond our capabilities. Maybe it's not your family. Maybe you're better than me at raising kids and you're perfectly comfortable with where they are at. Maybe it's the church. You don't like the way that one parents. You don't like the way that one sings. Maybe you wish the people around you would just get it to the degree that you do then maybe the church would meet its real potential. Maybe it's the pastor. We could spend a lot of time there, right? If he would just take seriously what I need him to take seriously, then the church could work. Maybe it's just you. It's you and your own spiritual odyssey to be all that God intended for you to be. And so you work, 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 you fret, 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 you push, 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 you know, so that all things go well. Beloved, if that's you, I want you to listen to Mark this morning. Jesus is not out there scouring the countryside looking for the best qualified people. And he hasn't been that way from the beginning. He's not looking for the ones who, you know, will really put their backs into the work. He's not looking for the strongest and the brightest and the best workers. He's not looking for the best looking. That's not the picture here. He's not looking for charisma. Here is the king of kings. He simply walks into a world that is fallen and marred and hideous. And he begins the work of restoration by commanding and gathering those from that refuse heap of humanity that he came in order to save. Those whom he called from the foundations of the world. Those like us.
and even the wind and the waves. Nature itself cannot resist the voice of this king. He speaks, and creation itself obeys him. He speaks, and it is. This is the God that Mark is putting before you this morning. Do you see him? Beloved, take your worries and your fears and your troubles to the truth of his word and the witness of his faithfulness, his power, his majesty. Leave them there at his feet. Jesus simply walks into hostile territory and the territory itself changes according to his word. What do you who belong to him have to fear? Beloved, can you see why this is so important in the Christian life? The beauty of the death of self is that the battle is over. This king saw it through to the end, and he alone stands victorious. He is the king, and he's given to you new life now in him. And all that he has is yours in union with him through faith, faith that he gives. Anything less than that, anything that places the onus on us rising up and doing our part is much less than what Mark is describing and it will kill your assurance. It's settling for rubbish. Though the table of the king has been spread out before you with the open invitation to come and to eat and to be satisfied, to rejoice. You need not strive. You need not push, you need not worry, you need not be afraid. The king has spoken, and with his word, all of created order falls into line. Beloved, do you see the glory in that? Do you desire to live in that kind of reality? Then praise God that Jesus bids you come. Praise God that he speaks and those who are his will follow. And he does not make it your responsibility. He says, come. And I am going to use you to bring glory to me and my kingdom. That's biblical Christianity. And Mark is placing before you Jesus Christ, the Son of God. This is the real Jesus. And the question is, beloved, Why do we settle for less than this? Will you find comfort, peace, joy, and rest in this king? Or will you search in vain to find it in anything else? Beloved, I pray that we will find it here where it actually is in Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And I pray that we will all embrace this king And this message and this kingdom is all that we could ever need by the grace of Almighty God and for His glory alone. Amen? Let's pray.